You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to Seabreeze. We're glad you've joined us on this first Sunday of this new year. Before I get into the message today, I want to update you on a, a personal matter. For the past three years, my wife Rebecca has been undergoing treatment for a, a chronic lung condition. And this afternoon, we're traveling to a hospital in Denver to continue that treatment. So we'll be there for uh, two weeks. So I wanted to make you aware of that and particularly just ask you to pray for us. We're going to be driving, so we leave this afternoon. So we appreciate pr- prayer for protection as we uh, drive there today and tomorrow and then make our way back in a couple of weeks. And then particularly, we'd appreciate prayer for uh, wisdom from God on what to do next on the treatment. Uh, she has not responded the way most people respond to the treatment for this condition. So this place in Denver is the top place in the nation for this condition, and so that's why we're heading there. And we're very grateful for the advances of medical science, but we know that God's the one who knows everything. So we'd really appreciate your prayer for uh, wisdom about the next steps to take uh, in this process. So I'll be kicking off uh, this four-part message series today. Then I'll be gone for the next two Sundays, and then I'll be back, God willing, in time to wrap this up um, at the end of this series. So let's go ahead and dive into the message Uh, for today. If you've ever been on a family road trip, kind of like the one my wife and I are going to take this afternoon, you're familiar with the question that's the title of this message series, Are We There Yet? I imagine sometime after we pass Barstow, my wife and I will be wondering, (laughs) should we have flown instead of this? This is a, a long, long drive. Are we there yet? Now, the parents, if you're traveling with a family, the parents obviously feel this question, but it's usually the kids that asked this question again and again and again. There is just nothing like the open road to numb our sense of progress. And as people, we are wired to make progress. We're wired to get somewhere in life, whether it's on the road or in life in general. Without a clear sense of progress, we, we get discouraged, and then eventually we just lose heart. Now, life, of course, is the longest of all road trips. We spend decades trying to get somewhere in life. And as we mark this new year, 2022 is really the, the next marker, mile marker on this lifelong road trip. But just because the calendar has turned, just because it's a new year, doesn't necessarily mean that we're actually making progress. In order to make progress, we need to answer four very important questions. And these are the four questions we're going to look at in this message series. The first question is, where are we going? Where are we going? If we don't know where we're going, or if our planned destination turns out to be a mirage, well, then the mile markers of time are only quantifying just how lost we really are. We're not really making progress. We're just getting more and more lost. The second question is, why are we going there? This is kind of like the fuel in the, the fuel tank in the car. If we don't have a good reason for why we are going where we're going, we're going to run out of motivation. The motivation that we need to to keep moving forward, to fuel our progress. And when the journey of life becomes challenging, which it always does, or our destination and arrival, our goals uh, take longer to get to than we thought, when either of those happen, if if we don't have a good reason why, we're going to run out of motivation. We're going to run out of fuel, and we're going to stop. The third question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? The important destinations of life are beyond the horizon. We can't see them. We can imagine them, we can dream about them, but we can't see them. And so 
we need to have a plan for how we're going to get to those unseen destinations. We don't have a turn-by-turn navigational plan to guide us step-by-step to get us to where we want to go. Well, then we're going to end up wandering in circles and getting lost. The fourth question is, are we making progress? If we don't have a clear way to mark progress, it's going to tend to feel like we're going in circles in life because daily life is so repetitive. We wake up every morning and do about the same thing we do every morning, and then we, we have slight variations through the week, but week after week goes on, and year after year goes on, and if we don't have a sense of how we're really making progress, it's going to feel like, well, we're just kind of going in circles. So in this series, we're going to answer these four questions. And we're going to answer these questions, particularly for us as a church. This will be helpful for you personally, but we're going to address this from a church perspective. Because a church is, well, it's kind of like a family, like that family road trip. It's a group of people who are traveling together in life. We are, of course, all individuals. We have individual lives. We have individual goals. We have individual jobs, individual families, and individual destinations that we're trying to get to. But it turns out that the truly important destinations in life cannot be accomplished individually. The big places that we are designed to arrive at require the help of other people. We must team together if we're going to accomplish the truly important things in life. So consider this series an invitation, a personal invitation. Especially if you're new to Seabreeze, consider this as an invitation to join this family of faith as we set our collective sights on the big destinations that God has set in each of our hearts, the places we all really want to get to in life. We begin today with the first question of progress. Where are we going? Here at Seabreeze, we have one sentence that summarizes our destination, our goal, what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the sentence, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. Everything we do as a church points to this goal. This is our destination. This, this is magnetic north on the compass of what we're trying to accomplish as a church. Now, what I want to do this morning is unpack this sentence. You may have heard this sentence a lot, but I want to pause as we begin this new year. I can't think of a better way to start the new year to say, where are we going as a church? What are we trying to accomplish? And this may be a good reminder for you, or it may be new information for you. And I'm going to explain this important sentence for us as a church, not in the order of the words, but in the order of the thoughts. We're going to go through this in thought order. I want you to think of the sentence kind of like a pyramid. It has a foundational uh, idea and then pieces that build on that. So we're going to go through this in order of, of thought, the foundation first and then moving our way up. The foundation of this sentence is that simple phrase, in Christ. So let's start there. In Christ. Jesus Christ is the biggest question that every person must face in life. If that question is not resolved in this life, it will shape all of eternity. It must be answered. Are we in or are we out? Now, this is not a matter of moral, moral qualifications. Are we good enough to make it in and, and to be accepted by Jesus? 
That's not the in or out question. The question is whether we personally have decided to follow Jesus Christ, to make a commitment to him, to give our lives to him, or have we not, in or out? Why is this so important? Last month, a neighbor that um, has been four down, four houses down from us for the past 20 years knocked at my door, and he asked for help. And this was what he wanted help with. His father-in-law was nearing death, and his father-in-law was struggling tremendously with his own personal guilt. And this neighbor knows, of course, that I'm a pastor, and so he figured, well, pastors know about forgiveness, so let's see if he can help me figure this out. So he asked me the question, how can I convince him to forgive himself? How can I convince him to forgive himself? That was a great question. I said, well, why, why don't you come on and let's sit down and talk about that. And so we, we talked for a long time, and I explained over time why I don't think that it really is possible for us to completely forgive ourselves. And even if we could, I don't think that would be enough to deal with our guilt. And I explained it this way. I said, it would be like me doing something wrong to my wife and then trying to forgive myself for that wrong. What I really need is my wife's forgiveness because she's the one that I've wronged. And no matter how I feel about myself, and no matter what I can say to myself, it's not going to be enough because there's a break in our relationship, and therefore what I really need is her forgiveness. But it turns out she's not the only one that I've wronged. I have also... When I wrong her, I've also wronged the God who made the laws, the moral laws of what is right and wrong. He's the one that has said, this is how you should treat each other. This is how you should treat your wife. And so when I violate those laws, when I do what is wrong, I don't just wrong her. I don't just do damage to her. I do wrong in that relationship with God as well. Now, in our culture, we have an understanding. In fact, the modern world has an understanding of how important the law writer is in the question of right and wrong. Whenever a crime is committed in this state, the name of the trial is not the perpetrator, the one who did wrong, versus the victim, the one who was wronged. It's always the perpetrator, the one who did wrong, versus the entity that wrote the law, the state of California. It's not the individual, it's the state of California. So when I wrong my wife, it's not just Bevan versus Rebecca, if that case file had a name. It's not just Bevan versus Rebecca. It is that, but it's not just that. Ultimately, it's Bevan versus the God who wrote that law, who I am ignoring and making a break with. This is why, I explained to my neighbor, why we can't really forgive ourselves and why even, it's, even if we can get it, the forgiveness for everyone that we've wronged, that still is not enough. What we really need is God's forgiveness. This is why guilt is one of the deep struggles of the human experience. Everyone struggles with guilt because there is a break in our relationship with God. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 in the New Testament explains it this way, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. 
So there's one God, and there's one mediator between us and that God. What this is saying is that there is a problem between us and the God who made us. That's why there's a need for a mediator. You don't call in a mediator unless there's a conflict, unless there's a break, unless there's a problem, unless there's a need to bring two parties who are at distance back together again. And this verse goes on to say only Jesus Christ is able to be that mediator because only he paid the price for our sin and is able to ransom us from the debt that our sin and our guilt has brought on us. Now, how do we know that this is really true? The last sentence says, it has now been witnessed to. It's easy to dismiss that because the big truths are in the previous statements, but this is an important idea. What this is saying is this notion that Jesus came to forgive our sins and is the only one who can forgive us is not just some religious idea that popped into the mind of someone. They made it up, and then a bunch of gullible people believed it. And what this is claiming is that the, the arrival of Jesus and what he did and said occurred in history. It's not just something that was made up. Lots of people were there to see it happen and listen to him teach. And then Jesus died at a specific place. You can go there at, at a specific time 2,000 years ago. Thousands of people saw this occur, and it was recorded as an act of history. And then this Jesus rose from the dead on a particular Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. There is more historical evidence surrounding the existence of Christ than many of the other figures of history that nobody questions. The, the big difference between Jesus and every other figure of history that we don't have videotape on, we had to have records to see, the big difference between Jesus and everyone else is that if what Jesus said and did is true, then that has serious implications on my life and your life today. That's different than other people of history. For example, Caesar Augustus was a contemporary of Jesus' time. What he said and what he did, did is also recorded. But what he said and what he did at a distance of 2,000 years has nothing to do with me today. I mean, like Jesus, Caesar claimed to be God. But unlike Jesus, he never pulled off that resurrection thing, proving that he actually was God. So what that means is I can learn about Caesar and the rest of the events and people of history. But when it comes to learning about Jesus Christ, if I really learn about what he said and what he did, he forces us to make a decision about him. Am I in or am I out? Do I believe what he said and accept what he did? for my own forgiveness, or, or not. That brings us to the next item on the pyramid in this sentence, broken people. This is why we need Christ. The reason is because our break with God, this guilt that we experience and all of its implications, our break with God isn't just between us and God. The implications of that break is it broke everything else. It broke us, and it broke our world. 
On December of last month, December 6th, actually, the, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a rare public warning. The Surgeon General has done this occasionally, but it's very rare. The public warning was about the rising rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide attempts among the youth in the wake of COVID. And he called for more to be done to address this crisis. And he's right. The challenge is this. The problems that are causing this kind of pain, this level of anxiety, this level of depression, the, this number of suicide attempts, the, the, the cause of this goes deep. It's not just COVID. COVID has, has been, I think it's been kind of like a, a giant x-ray machine that has shown all of the breaks in our lives and in our culture and in our world that were kind of not visible before the pressure of COVID. The problem, the breaks, aren't caused by COVID. They're maybe accelerated, they're maybe revealed, but the breaks go deep. And therefore, this problem, as important as it is, or any other problem that have been revealed in these last couple of years, it can't be fixed by just a little or even a lot of human effort or a lot of government dollars. The simple fact is we are all broken. And this world is broken. Now, we're not all suicidal, but we're all broken in some way. If you drop a glass a hundred times on this concrete, it will shatter differently every time. It'll shatter, it'll break, but into a different number of pieces and in different directions. And that's the way it is with us. No two people break the exact same way. But the experience of being broken and living in a broken world is something that we all share. I'm not struggling with a desire to end my life today. But I understand how someone can get there. I've walked down enough dark paths to know, you know, if I keep going down, that I, this is where it goes. I don't just shake my head at every form of sin in this world and say, what's wrong with those people? It's like, oh, I know. Because it's in here. We're all broken. Jesus, on one point of his time here on earth, looked out on the crowds of people and accurately described what this brokenness feels like for us. Here's what he says in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And another verse, another point says he, he wept. He just cried over how painful it is to be broken and live in a broken world. On this occasion, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think this is one of the greatest descriptions of what it, what it is like to be broken and to live in a broken world. We know what this is like. We're all harassed. The word here in the Greek language, the New Testament is written in Greek, literally means to be hounded by trouble. We know what that's like. We're all trying to dodge and get away and run ahead of, but we're all, we all have the sense that trouble's tracking us down. And in a broken world, there's just no escaping trouble. 
I mean, you might be able to string together a few good days, maybe a few good months. Some people appear to be able to put a few years together. But eventually, trouble will track you down. Someone who is broken will find you and mess with you. A world that is broken will blindside you. Eventually, your own body is going to hassle you. But not only are we harassed, that's bad enough, we're also, Jesus says, helpless. On our own power, with our own best thinking, we can't fix ourselves. We're helpless. We lack the ability to put the pieces of our lives back together again. And what Jesus says, we're like sheep without a shepherd. What he's implying is we need a shepherd, someone to guide us. Jesus is the great shepherd. He is the only one that can begin to put the pieces of our lives back together again. And that brings us to the next statement, experience transformation. This is what Jesus offers. You see, Jesus does far more than just cancel the debt of our sin and forgive us. That's huge. That's at the foundation of every problem. But he does more than that. He changes us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the New Testament says it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that phrase again, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It doesn't say that if anyone is in Christ, he is a better person or a nicer person or a happier person. Hopefully they are, but that's not the promise. And the reason is because while those things are nice and good and something we all pursue, those are enhancements to our life. And Jesus is not just an add-on feature. He's not just a plug-in. He's not just an enhancement. He is a transforming power. When you decide to follow him, when you give your life to him, when you commit your life to him, he begins a transformation project in your life, just like he has in mine. He takes the pieces of our broken paths and puts them together into something that really we couldn't have imagined before, something entirely new. I don't know if you've ever had the chance of touring some of the ruins of the ancient cities, maybe along the Mediterranean shores and in Rome, Italy, Palestine. But the ancient cities are called ruins often because, well, you walk through them and they're in ruins. They're in pieces. The columns are falling over. The buildings are just in pieces. You can see the streets and the roads if the city has been excavated properly. But one of the things, if you've ever toured these cities, that really stands out is the mosaics. Here's a picture of a mosaic of an ancient city. Compared to the rest of the city, this is amazing. The rest of the city is in ruins, not this. This piece of art looks pretty similar to what it looked like two, 3,000 years ago when this piece of art was put together. Why? What's the difference? Well, the difference is the starting point. The ancient cities started as complete constructed being or cities and buildings. And then time and war and weather crumbled them. 
Mosaics started the other way around. They started as pieces. And then artists put them together into beautiful pieces of art. So they couldn't fall apart because they were already pieces. And I think this is such a great example of what Jesus does. He takes the broken pieces of our life. He creates mosaics, beautiful pieces of art, out of what was just a pile of problems and a mess. Now, it takes time. This is not a, a magic wand event where God, you decide to follow Jesus, and the next day people are like, wow, you're amazing. They might not even notice. But over time, they begin to notice. So the question is this, how are our neighbors and coworkers and friends going to hear about this? Do they know this? I would say, of all the people that I know in my neighborhood, the friends that I have that are not a part of following Jesus Christ, they all know about Jesus Christ. I don't know of anyone. Were you to say the words Jesus Christ, they would be who? They, they know, they've heard. The, the record of history has made that clear. But very few people understand how Jesus is connected to the problems, the harassing that they face every week. So how are they going to learn about that? And be clear enough about that so that they might actually make an informed decision and decide, like many of us, to be in Christ. Well, that brings us to the last phrase on the pyramid, thoughtfully inviting. We are the ones to invite them. Broken people like us are best qualified to invite broken people because we know. We don't know everything, but we know how messed up we are, and we know how helpful Jesus has been to forgive us and to begin to build things together again. And that makes us qualified, best qualified, to thoughtfully invite other people to consider being in Christ. Back to Matthew 9, 36, let me read again what Jesus said in the first statement, and then I'll continue on. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then what does he say next? Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What does he mean when he says the harvest is plentiful? He's using the, an agricultural analogy. Everyone, for the most part, in this period of time, uh, were involved in agriculture. That was, it was an agricultural economy. And he's, what he's saying, basically, is there are a lot of people. Everyone's harassed and helpless. And in the middle of that, there are a lot of people who are really open to the good news of Jesus Christ and the offer of him being their good shepherd. They're open to the forgiveness that he offers, and they're open to his invitation to rebuild their lives. But what's the problem? Jesus says the workers are few. Well, why do you need workers for this? Why can't you just get the word out? Why does one person need to talk to another person personally for this, this change, this in Christ thing to to really take off. In my teens, I spent many summers picking strawberries for money. It's kind of what we did. 
um, in that part of Oregon where I lived for many years. And one of the things that we all thought of pretty early on is, can't they come up with a machine to do this? Why do we have to do this? They've come up with harvesting machines for pretty much every crop, not strawberries. Why? You can't mechanize the harvesting of strawberries without damaging the fruit. And the thing about strawberries is, as you can see here, they, they grow together. There's the red one that's ready, and then there's the green one that's not, and then there's one that's already picked. And most strawberry fields would go through three different pickings in a summer as they harvest, as they ripen at different times. And this is why strawberries must be hand-picked. And that, I think, is similar to why we must be invited individually. I mean, people can respond in a large gathering like this and decide to follow Jesus, but if you look back, it's usually because there was someone or some number of people that they knew that really had an influence on them. We're, we're kind of like strawberries as people. We bruise easily. And we grow and change at different rates. And so we're reluctant to give our lives to a big idea that we can't see in the life of anyone we know. This is why the message of Jesus is best delivered in person. That way, the person who's being invited to consider Christ can not only hear the words, but they can see the impact of those words in a person that they know. They can see the message in us. And it's as we love people, really care about them, and it's as they see us face the storms of life, they get a chance to see the message, not just hear it. Now, we are all a work in progress. And I used to think, I'm not good enough to share the good news because people are going to say, well, you're a Christian, and look at this. But what I've discovered is it's as I struggle, that's actually most encouraging to people. I mean, if I present the good news of Jesus and say, and you can be as amazing as me too someday, <laughs> most people would be, well, I don't think I can. <laughs> so it's our brokenness that really qualifies us and the, wor the work that Jesus is doing in us. So in this new year, as a church, we've got a big goal. We want to make progress in this inviting part of our mission. If you've been with us over the last few years, we, we've spent some time before COVID hit really spending time praying for people. Now we want to get to the point where we're actually going to open our mouths and invite people to respond to the good news, the gospel. And so we've got two sentences that, that are going to be goals for us. The, the first sentence is, is kind of our dream. The second sentence is the specific nature of it. So let me show you the first sentence. We want to become a church where the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus, moves out from us like a groundswell that brings restoration. That's our dream. We're not amazing people, but we want to be a place where just like the groundswells move over long distances of the ocean and bring the waves to the shores. We want to be the kind of church that brings wave after wave of good news into this community. But how are we going to do that? Well, here's the specific goal. This will happen as each of us takes steps towards sharing the gospel with the goal of 100 people inviting someone to respond to the gospel over the next year. 
This is what we are praying for and inviting all of us to be a part of. If you're a part of this church, we want to invite you to take a next step or two or three or four towards inviting people to respond to the gospel. And our ultimate goal is that there would at least be a hundred times where a hundred people in this church would be able to share the gospel of Jesus clear enough and invite someone to respond to that. This past fall, we took a survey as a church to try to get a clear picture of how we're doing in this thoughtfully inviting part of our mission. Many of you were a part of that survey. And I'll be honest, that survey was so encouraging to me. You know what was encouraging? What stood out is how much you, we, as a church, really do care about the people that God has placed in our lives and how much we really do want them to find what we found in Jesus Christ. It was very clear that we long for that to happen. The, the common challenge that we are all facing, this is what the survey revealed, the common challenge that we're facing is we don't know what to do next. Particularly, we don't know what to say next. We, we've got relationships. We're working in environments. We're living in neighborhoods. We're taking our kids to school. We're involved in youth sports. And we know lots of people that, as far as we can tell, they really don't know of what Jesus offers. And we long for them to know. But we don't know how to go from just our normal conversations to the good news of Jesus. And that's understandable. I mean, how, how do you go from talking with your neighbor about the trash strike to the good news of Jesus Christ? I mean, what segue is there that allows that to happen? Can you be talking about the trash piling up and then say, you know, that reminds me of how much God loves us. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It's awkward. That's bizarre. And so we often sit there going, oh, I really wish this person knew about Jesus Christ. We're talking about the trash strike, but I don't know how to get from here to there. So we're stuck with wanting people to know about Jesus, but not knowing how to talk about it in such a way that isn't awkward and bizarre. So what we want to do this year is we want to give you some tools to help you take some next steps towards thoughtfully inviting. And for the past four months, those of us on staff have been learning and practicing some really helpful tools that we're going to be teaching you and helping you with in the coming months. And as we were working through this, we would meet as a staff every week and we would debrief. We would tell stories about our attempts and how it went and what we'd learned. And I think all of us on staff discovered that each of us have some personal barriers that we have to get, get past if we're going to actually open our mouths, and share the good news of Jesus. We all have barriers. And I'll just be honest with you. One of the big barriers that I have and that many of us on staff discovered we have is we kind of have this baseline assumption that pretty much nobody around us is interested in Jesus. I mean, that's just our assumption. And it's kind of understandable because we all watch movies and we see shows and we listen to the news and nobody appears to be interested in Jesus Christ. So we just assume that nobody cares about Jesus. And the truth is, we're not the first ones to think this. 
The disciples of Jesus actually thought this. There's an interesting story in John chapter 4 where Jesus asks a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. This was his segue conversation starter. This was his, his goal of trying to talk about matters of faith and share the good news with her. And the disciples are watching this. And Jesus knows what they're thinking as he begins this conversation. What they're thinking is, ah, oh, this is embarrassing. Jesus, she's not interested. She's here to get water. What are you doing? So Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, says this in John chapter 4, verse 35. He says, do you not say, four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. What's Jesus saying? He's using that same agricultural harvest analogy to make a point. What we tend to do is, oh, they're not interested. Maybe in four months they'll be interested. And Jesus says, no. You know, there are some crops that you can look at and tell if they're ready to be harvested. There are some crops that you can say, oh, that's about four months. People are not like that. You never know what's really going on inside someone's heart and inside someone's mind. You don't know. I don't know. I can't look at someone and say, ah, they're not interested. I just don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. What that means is you're going to have to take initiative. I'm going to have to take initiative to find out. It's like those strawberries that I picked as a teen. The leaves cover the berries. You can't look on a strawberry field and say, oh, yeah, that's ready. You have to go down the rows, turn over the leaves, and see. And some are ready and some are not ready. We need to thoughtfully initiate a conversation with people to see if they're open to God. The point Jesus is making is don't assume. What he's saying is open your eyes. So this fall, personally, I've been working on opening my eyes. And this is embarrassing to admit, but I am a head down, keep moving forward towards the task kind of guy. And I'm embarrassed to say what that means is that people can become kind of like landscape to me on the way to my goal. They're, they're just in the background. But they're not. They're people. So I've been working on opening my eyes, and I've been trying to think of ways that I can change my perspective as I move through my days and I interact with people. So a couple months ago, I decided to try something on one of my bike rides. I, I love to ride my bike, so I was on the San Gabriel River Trail. And I decided that what I'm going to do is pray for the people I saw pass me on the bike trail. Now, that's a low-risk activity. <laughs> I mean, there's no way I could strike up a conversation. You know, it's like half a second, shoot. <laughs> the best you can do is wave and pray. So I decided, well, I'm going to do that. It was a 30-mile ride on that trail, and my guess is that I, I passed about 200 people. And what was interesting is after about praying for 20 of them, I got bored. <laughs> and what I realized is I got one, maybe two prayers that I pray for people who, that I don't know, that I don't think, you know. And if I was going to do this for two hours, I need to come up with more prayers. So I kept coming up with new things to pray for people. And eventually, I started getting really curious. I started wondering, 
this person married, and I started praying for their marriage and that God would use their marriage to bring them to him. And I, I began to pray for all different aspects of a person's life. I began to pray for the homeless people that are on the trail. And i, I just be honest, after that two hours, it changed me for about a week. Then I was back to my head down, get it done kind of approach to life. And so I've been working on doing this over and over again. I actually became curious about people. And I, on a few occasions, would actually tear up at the thought of someone not knowing Jesus Christ. Whereas before, it was just thoughts as people rode by. Those two hours changed me. People became people, not passing landscape. I encourage you to try something like this. You're standing in line, getting irritated on your phone. Look up. Pray. Wonder. So again, we want to become a church where the gospel moves out from us like a groundswell that brings restoration. This will happen as each of us takes next steps towards sharing the gospel with the goal of 100 people inviting someone to respond to the gospel over the next year. I am really excited to get some of these tools in your hands. And I can't wait to see the lives that God will change in this coming year. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would remind us through the power of your Holy Spirit to lift up our heads and open our eyes. As we go about our business this afternoon, maybe we're standing in line somewhere, we're waiting at a traffic light, we're walking down a trail, people all around us. God, I pray that you would help us to be curious about them, to pray about them. And God, we pray in this coming year, you'd help each of us take next steps. And that there would be the great privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus clear enough in such a way that we can ask people to respond. What they decide, we know, is in your hands. That you've given us the task of sharing the message that brings life into this broken world. We ask for your help, and we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.